Hello, I'm Hector Acero, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, and we're gathering friends and members of our ICS community here on this podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life at ICS. My name is Mark Standish, and I'm a junior member at ICS. We're nearing the end of the semester and looking ahead to the courses coming next semester. Today, to tell us about one of these courses, junior member Abby Hofstede joins us to talk with Dr. Michael Demore of the King's University in Edmonton and Samir Gasanov, a junior member PhD student at ICS. Michael and Samir will be teaching a course called Capitalisms in the West, Intellectual History, Core Institutions, and Architectonic Critique. Classes begin January 14th from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can find more info on our website, but now, here's Abby. and I'm a junior member here at ICS. I will be writing my thesis on human agency and socioeconomic life, and so I'm very excited to be here with you all today to talk about the upcoming course, Capitalisms in the West, Intellectual History, Core Institutions, and Architectonic Critique. This course is being taught by Dr. Michael Demore and Samir Gasanov. Michael is an ICS alumnus who is now the Associate Professor of Social Philosophy in Politics, History, and Economics at the King's University. He is also cross-appointed as faculty at ICS. And Samir is an ICS junior member currently in the process of writing his PhD dissertation. So without further ado, I want to welcome Michael and Samir to the Critical Faith Podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. So... I guess we could start off with just given each of your particular areas of interest, uh, why do you think this course is important to offer right now? Why do you think it's worth talking about capitalism? Why is it worth talking about capitalism? Um, Because we are constantly talking about capitalism anyway. Capitalism, uh, as Marxist critics have been prone to say, is prone to crisis. Uh, And we've been living in the past, well, slightly over a decade through uh, at least a couple of very different shocks or crises uh, in capitalism uh, that are worth reflecting on. Also, for my part, living here in Alberta, um, we uh, the so-called the boom and bust cycle of capitalism uh, is something is sort of waves we've been riding for some time to now where Alberta is um, in a lo- probably a long-term um, recession. Uh, or at least a significant downturn that was present even before COVID. Um, 
wrestling with the structure and the consequences of our economic system um, and trying to understand what it is we're going through and the causes of it and the possibilities for change strikes me as a relevant and important thing to do. Yeah, I would really echo what what, uh, what Mike is saying. Uh, I, I mean, there, there does seem like it, the current forms of sort of capitalist, social, and economic governmentality are at an inflection point of sorts. And as Mike just mentioned, there's just something about crises that seems to be endemic to capitalism. But the confluence of factors is really unique today. Um, in a syllabus that we wrote back in March, um, I think it should be available shortly online, we really underscore the role of the, of the COVID pandemic and we suggest that the Great Depression is the closest historical analog. So we imagine the consequences, uh, the, the sociopolitical, the economic consequences to be comparably epochal. But in an obvious sense, you know, uh, the, the COVID pandemic has wreaked havoc um, on the economic and social life. But in a less obvious sense, I think the pandemic has played an apocalyptic role, which is to say it's helped to disclose the long existing tensions and exacerbated dilemmas um, of capitalist forms. So I think this is the perfect time to really sit back, take a long view of how we arrived at the moment. Um, the future is uncertain and a range of plausible trajectories are possible. So the, the plethora of complex factors that travel under the umbrella of capitalism um, can help inform us a judgment of wheat from tares. What the one thing that the pandemic, but not just the pandemic, but also other social movements that have happened in the past a year or so, uh, particularly the recrudescence of uh, Black Lives Matter and other social movements in the context of the pandemic, have helped to to some degree push the the so-called Overton window a little bit uh, with respect to some more to newer or more radical possibilities. Some of the, most of them still within the context of basically a capitalist system, but some of them also in terms of more people being willing to claim the name of socialist or anti-capitalist or something like that. And so this is a time when, although things are in crisis, crisis also creates the context for people to reflect on more possibilities. When things are normal, or what we assume is normal, then the range of possibilities of social and economic possibilities seems to be circumscribed by the normal, right? We have to more or less keep doing what we're doing. But under these kinds of conditions, we're faced with the possibility of not continuing to just do what we're doing, right? To just maintaining, reproducing um, the economic systems we live in. But we also then have to understand what we're critiquing and what we're considering moving beyond or outside of or pushing the limits of. Um, a lot of the discourse about capitalism is inexact and sometimes lazy. And that's something that we want to, uh, to, to not fall into too easily. So just to piggyback on that, um, on what Mike is saying, I think the, you know, it's very instructive that we have capitalism in the plural. And that's really what we want to submit as, um, you know, you really need to sort of pluralize and historicize something as complex as capitalism. 
So, you know, what does it mean to inhabit this very complex space and ethos that's really, there's really nothing else. I mean, it's, it's in some ways, it's um, coterminous with modernity itself. Um, in some ways, it predates it. Um, so even if one were to think about alternatives, it's always in reference to these capitalistic forms. And there's a great variety. I think that's another thing that we have seen um, how different societies have been responding. I mean, everything from the Chinese exceptionalism to the Swedish model and back to the Americans and so on. So you've got a great variety. So in some ways, it's try to hone in on what the ideal type is and attend to the you know, really important differences. Yeah, so I guess uh, one of the next things that I wanted to ask was, um, like Samir, you've talked about apocalypse. Um, and Michael, you talked about the possibility for something new. So many would say that capitalism has failed us and that we need a new alternative altogether. Uh, so the capitalisms in your course title suggests a really complex history worth attending to. So I was wondering from your perspectives, uh, if you guys could tell us about something that you consider to be a real benefit or positive potential of capitalism and what is something that you think is a real danger? So I, I would say that the dynamism of capitalism is undeniable. The complex combination of factors uh, under what we're calling capitalism's has helped to propel historical developments um, beyond more static forms of, say, late medieval societies. And again, the Chinese exceptionalism is a contemporary testimony to, you know, uh, Mike's favorite word, protean character of capitalism. <laughs> you know, the, the combination of a communist party mode of governance with a peculiar form of state-sponsored capitalism. And pursuing such explicit goals as lifting its own population out of extreme poverty. Um, as to the dangers, I mean, they're legion. Um, but I'll mention just one now. The populist and activist reactions to the excesses of capitalist governmentality may be quite ugly. Anger against capitalistic aberrations is not necessarily destined to lead to constructive proposals. So my hope is that our course is a modest attempt to forestall those kinds of dangers. One of my the, one of the challenges that I find, and one of the things that made me want to do this course, besides the wonderful opportunity of working with Samir on this, is that when we criticize capitalism, it's hard to know exactly what we mean. Because capitalism, and this is both its strength, so this is my answer to your question, it's both its great strength and its great danger, uh, is, as Samir said, highly dynamic, and that means very adaptable, and it takes a lot of different forms. So when we critique capitalism, you can critique particular aspects of capitalism or particular versions of capitalism um, or particular consequences of capitalism, but it's hard to capture the whole thing in its both its historical and even its contemporary varieties. Uh, and capitalism is not just an economic system, of course, it's also tied into a political system and cultural uh, uh, practices and assumptions. And it becomes part, it has become uh, part of our whole world, right? It's not easily isolatable. So when we critique it, we, we need to understand 
the different varieties it takes and the way in which it engages with uh, with culture, with government, with uh, even with the arts and all those sort of other stuff. And the challenge is precisely both its great dynamism and its ability to take a variety of different forms. That's to its credit to some to a large degree. It also means that it's hard to think of possibilities outside of it when it can be so incredibly inclusive, right? The um, certain forms of neo-Marxism have used the term co-optation, right? Capitalist is a co-optation machine. It's um, it's it's has an amazing ability to take alternatives to it to continue to feed itself, right? So you try to create alternatives to capitalism in the form of, say, fair trade uh, organizations. Capitalism says, great, I'll take that. Good. And it just becomes part of its machine. You want to critique it by creating avant-garde art that is uh, uncommercial. Capitalism says, great, right? Takes it and it becomes part, right? It, the whole culture of rebellion and avant-gardism and so on becomes something it, it can market and becomes a market niche and so on. So the amazing dynamism of capitalism is one of its great strengths, but it is also what makes it difficult to create, maintain, and even imagine alternatives to it. That's great. Um, so I guess the other thing we wanted to talk about today was uh, from, from your perspective, what is the unique reformational contribution to this discussion? So how do, and how does this compare to some of the other Christian traditions' uh, responses to capitalism? From the beginnings of the reformational movement, at least in the say in some of the works of Abraham Kuyper, you have the development of sort of a mode of inquiry that Kuyper called architectonic critique. This is there especially in his uh, address to the Christian Social Convention in um, uh, or Christian Social Congress in 1891, where he's considering the so-called the social question, which is the question of the condition of the industrial working class. So the great changes of the previous century uh, of the industrial revolution, the reorganization of the class structure and society, the great enrichment of society in aggregate, but the impoverishment and immiseration of large numbers of the industrial working class. Kuiper says to his fellow Christians, we have a tendency to think about this as a problem of charity, or a problem of morals, or a problem of piety, but that doesn't really get at the fundamental question, or a fundamental question, which is this very structure of the society, right? The way we structure and organize uh, this society. So he says, what we need to do is exercise an architectonic critique, right? That takes, that recognizes that the moral challenges and the challenges of charity and piety and education and so on that uh, so occupied his audience, his Christian audience, who were, you know, they were gung ho for Christian education and for the reform of morals and the promotion of piety uh, and so on to say that in order to really understand the problems and to motivate a wise response, we need to understand, do an architectonic critique. And this gets taken up uh, in some ways by Hermann Doiveard, most explicitly uh, by um, Bob Kautzwaard, um, the, uh, the economist. And 
uh, and, and by future generations of reformational thinkers. And so it's, it's bred in the bone of the reformational tradition to do this kind of depth level critique. I find, I find this sort of reformational depth level analysis to be uh, very helpful. And, and also just like in that it, because it seems that it, it speaks to the different levels of reality and acknowledges those levels, then when we consider something like capitalisms um, and we feel very like powerless, um, I think that like this provides us a real sort of uh, way in mm -hmm. um, to to sort of, I guess, uh, do something with that, to, to not just be paralyzed, to actually be able to like critically analyze and sort of look at these different levels. And so I find that's more genuinely hopeful than just sort of looking at the structures of society and saying, oh, shoot, they're too big. There's nothing we can really do about them. So. Yeah, exactly. And it also is hopefully prevents against superficial fixes. Um, so that if you only look at the surface level stuff, then you say, well, if we can just remediate this problem a little bit by throwing some money at it or regulating it a bit, well, then things will be okay, right? Which it can be a bit of a false hope, which isn't to say that we shouldn't do those things, right? Many of those things are wise and good and appropriate to do as sort of short and medium term strategies. But uh, if there's something dysfunctional in the fundamental architecture of our society or in our fundamental faith that drives our acceptance of uh, a disfigured uh, architectonic uh, of our society, then those surface level fixes will only ever be coping and remediation of something deeper. All right. So I guess that leads us into our last question, which is just a brief one. So, uh, but are there any sort of, you know, recent resources, popular articles, documentaries that can sort of introduce people to some of the topics that you're going to be looking at in this course um, and just illustrate some of the points that you've been making today? Well, I think Mike already mentioned, I mean, how can you not talk about capitalism? I mean, it's, it's just everywhere. It's clearly such a live topic. So there is extensive literature. That's obviously, you know, all of our materials. Um, and that's maybe itself only a very uh, small sampling. Um, uh, but but it's like you say, it's not really just for scholars and academics. Um, so, in fact, there's kind of an interesting uh, cross section, intersection rather, um, where both scholarly and popular approaches converge. So, for example, um, uh, Thomas Piketty, a renowned French economist, his uh, book, Capital in the 21st Century, is now available as a documentary on Netflix. I highly recommend it. It's visually um, very appealing. You know, one of my favorites, The Big Short, uh, great, great movie, great characters. We actually have as a requirement uh, in the course over the break for people to watch the now iconic film, The Corporation. I've just actually discovered that this September, September of 2020, uh, the, the makers of the movie followed up um, the 2003 sequel, uh, with the new corporation, the unfortunately necessary sequel, as they call it. Um, I haven't seen it yet. It's only uh, available in select theaters. I think it's now playing only in Kingston, Ontario. But uh, it promises to be an equally stirring and incisive look 
at the corporate form and its contemporary manifestations and abuses. So, yeah, there, there's really no shortage of material. That's absolutely right. I'll, I'll second all that and call out the highbrow answer. My, uh, my, my lowbrow answer, to a certain extent, is if you want to get yourself in the mood for this course, is to listen to a lot of late 70s, early 80s punk rock. Because, uh, in particular, The Clash, uh, if you listen to their ooh from beginning to end, you get this very, right, I talked about co-optation, you get this very interesting uh, development uh, where you get incisive recognitions of the drawbacks of late 70s welfare state capitalism in uh, Britain, uh, right up till their final album where they had a bunch of hits uh, and made a whole lot of money. And uh, so that's that's my, my slightly lower brow answer. Uh, but uh, if you want to go through the the process that made me interested in these questions in the first place back in my teenage years, it's uh, having gotten uh, deeply immersed in late 70s uh, or, or early 1980s punk rock, uh, and that'll cover most of the curriculum. So, you know, Mike, I don't know Clash at all because that's probably, I was on the other side of the Iron Curtain, so I would not have known about that. But what you were just describing made me think of... Um, in the 90s version of train spotting oh yeah you go through this whole film and that's kind of the scene you're describing but then at the end it's like it's all about capitalism and you know he's walking away with that big bag full of money having betrayed his comrades or whatever mm -hmm. uh as kind of a way into some sort of normalcy but it's hard to imagine what normalcy is for this group um anyways that conjured up that image for me Oh, that's very good. Well, I love the fact that you said that, you know, be, having been on the other side of the Iron Curtain, you wouldn't have known that stuff. Because what I love about that era of music is it's the sort of anti-capitalism that only a capitalist culture could have created. <laughs> uh, and that's exactly the Touché. kind of paradox that I want to be able to explore. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Samir and Michael. Thanks for joining us today. And uh, I have to say that I, for one, I'm really looking forward to the course. Excellent. Right. Thank you for making it possible. Yeah, thank you. And that brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So, Hector, what's your pleasure? Oh, Mark, I've been thinking a lot about that today, and I decided to share something I wasn't comfortable sharing earlier <laughs> in the year. I, uh, over the last few months uh, of pandemic, being locked at home situation, I've been uh, watching a lot of what I call football and you call soccer here. And it's something that I grew up watching all the time because everybody watches soccer in Colombia. And my dad was a, a fan of many teams and he will watch games day and night. And I hated it when I was a kid. And I've learned to love it over time. And I surrender to the fact that I actually like watching the games from beginning to end. So I've been doing a lot of uh, Sunday afternoon um, Premier League or Italian League watch marathons. So I am. Um, I need to come clean. I'm now uh, a soccer fan. 
Wow. Well, I mean, it's a good time to be a soccer fan because, like, soccer is the sport that just keeps kicking right now. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it, it does. <laughs> even 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 though there are there isn't a, a live audience in the games, which is also interesting because a lot of the yelling and like guiding that happens within the game is now audible mm -hmm. to those watching the game uh, through like TV or online. But that wasn't the case before, so mm. it, it it brings another layer of, of interest to the game for me. So I'm I'm excited. Well. I'm glad. Uh, I also like to indulge in a little bit of sports, maybe a lot of sports, and I'm feeling um, sports deprived uh, at the moment, but that's neither here nor there because NBA is coming back soon and that will fulfill all my desires. But that's not my pleasure this week. My pleasure this week is um, for those of us on Zoom, that's Danielle, Hector, and I. I'm holding up a book, which is... Word Problems by Ian Williams. Uh, and Ian Williams is, I don't know if he's my favorite poet, but his previous work of poetry called Personals is my favorite book of poetry. Um, and this book, Word Problems, came out in October, but I didn't know because I'm out of touch apparently. Um, and so I realized it a few days ago and picked one up. So I'm super excited to... Uh, delve into it. I've only I've been really busy, so I've only read like one poem of it, um, which was good. Um, but he's very like experimental with form um, and very, very, very clever. He's from Toronto uh, originally, but now is in um, Vancouver teaching at UBC. But uh, he and he won the his novel, which came out, I think, in 2018 called Reproduction, won the Giller Prize, and his previous book of poetry, Personals, was shortlisted for the Griffin Poetry Prize, which is like the best Canadian uh, book of poetry of the year. And he, if, you, if I try to give you a little bit of a taste for what Ian Williams is like, one of his poems in his previous book of poetry is called Rings, and it's actually like eight pages long, um, and there's like a paragraph of text uh, talking about his marriage and uh, the complications with that. And then it ends in a ring of text. And you can start reading the ring of text wherever you want inside the ring. And it will make sense no matter what. And you just keep reading it. It never ends. So it's talking about like the lifetime of a marriage commitment, but also like the lifetime of sadness um, <laughs> that that brings. Sadness and joy, but mostly sadness and uh, regret that's all built into um, what it means to be with someone for your life. So uh, super, super clever, but also uh, very, um, I don't know, evocative emotionally, um, which I appreciate. So check it out. Word Problems by Ian Williams, published by Coach House Books. That's it for our show this week. If you'd like to learn more about this course, Capitalisms in the West, Intellectual History, Core Institutions, and Architectonic Critique, beginning January 14th from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, or if you'd like to register for the course, you can visit our website at www.icscanada.edu. You can also email our registrar, Elizabeth R.S., at academic-registrar at icscanada.edu. 
with any questions you might have. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics, and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can find more information on the website just mentioned. And if anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow Michael as at DemoreMJ. You can follow Hector as at AceroF underscore Hector. You can follow me as at Mark Standish. And you can follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow along with us on Spotify, or find us on your podcast app of choice. Remember, following and reviewing the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on the radar. Most importantly, tell your friends. Mm-hmm.